Tonight we're talking about something that's very important. We're going to be talking about the uh, first beast of Revelation chapter 13. We want to explore that together. Um, before we get started, I just want to remind you that on your tables there are some papers and pencils, and you are invited to write down any questions you have. It doesn't have to be on the topic tonight, it could be on other topics, but you're invited to, to write down any questions. We want to have a short a question-answer period at the beginning of each meeting. We don't have any questions tonight, but hopefully we can have that tomorrow. So if you have questions, make sure and just jot those down, and um, you can leave them at the registration table, and uh, we, can, we can address those tomorrow. Well, we, we, we read in our scripture this evening, in our discussion time, we read one of the most uh, strong and fearful, you might say, warnings that are to be found in Scripture. Revelation chapter 14, verse 9 particularly, warns us against receiving the mark of the beast. It warns us against having the, uh, uh, that, that, uh, that mark, and it says that, um, verse, uh, verse 9 says, "...if any man worships the beast in his image, receives his mark in his forehead or in his hand..." The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. We're talking about some of the most severe punishments to be found in Scripture against the mark of the beast, worshiping the beast, receiving his mark. Now, I believe, I believe that if God is going to give us that kind of a warning, that he is going to not leave us wondering what the mark of the beast or the beast is. That's my personal conviction. I really believe that God has given us enough information in Scripture that we can know what He's talking about and we can be forewarned and forearmed. And that's the, really the, the topic of this whole weekend. We're going to be looking at Revelation 13 and Revelation 14. We're going to be trying to understand the, the beast and the mark. And uh, it's, it's juxtaposed against the seal of God in the book of Revelation. You have the mark of the beast, you have the seal of God. The mark of the beast is either in the, in the forehead or in the right hand. The seal of God is in the uh, forehead. Um, but both are competing, you might say, identifications. And uh, God has his mark, the beast has his mark. Now, how could the devil have us confused? Well, first of all, he could have us confused if we don't understand what the seal of God is, we probably won't understand what the mark of the beast is. We also could be confused if we don't understand what the beast is to begin with, right? And today we have a lot of confusion, especially in the realm of prophecy. And so we want to, we want to try to explore together these topics in the Bible. Now, there's no verse in the Bible that says the mark of the beast is. And I think if the devil had that, he would be able to twist something around to still confuse people. And so what we have to do is understand what God's Word is saying. We look at the big themes of Revelation. We look at the, 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 uh, the passages that talk about these, these warnings and these marks, and we then can come to an understanding of what it is that we're talking about. So tonight we're going to be looking. We're going to be looking at Revelation's first beast. And um, I want us to just say at the beginning that the, the, uh, the topic tonight is a, a rather, um, uh, how can I describe it? It, it's a topic that is, it's not the most beautiful topic in all of the book of Revelation. I hope that as uh, many of you have been with us from night to night, this would be our 22nd night, our 22nd lecture studying the books of Daniel and Revelation. I hope you will have seen Jesus in the books of Daniel and Revelation. Have you? 
I hope you will have seen the, the gospel in the books of Daniel and Revelation. I hope you will have seen the beauty of God's plan for us and for this planet. And he has a wonderful purpose, a wonderful plan. And so I, I want us to remember, even though we focus on the beast tonight, we are Christians, amen? We're not beastians. We don't focus on the beast. That's not the main emphasis of our message or our, our, our mission. We don't, we don't watch it. and No, we follow Christ, amen? We keep our eyes on Jesus. That's the point of the gospel. That's the point even of the book of Revelation. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. The beast is only important in the book of Revelation because the beast tries to obscure Christ. The beast tries to keep the knowledge of Christ, the truth of Christ away from the masses. And so there's, a, there's, a, there's an issue here, but the issue is we want Christ and we want more of him. We want all of him. We want the real Christ. We want the Christ of scripture and the Christ of the Bible. We don't want the antichrist or the one who takes the place of Christ. Amen? And so I want us to just have this, this understanding at the very beginning. I, I, I want us to, to realize that while we focus tonight on the beast of Revelation 13, that's not our overwhelming focus when we look at the Bible. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus. We have to keep our, our, um, our focus on Him. And I think in that context, I would just invite you to bow your heads with me for an additional word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given to us your word. We thank you that you've given to us the opportunity to study tonight. We thank you for the things that we have learned already, the things we will learn, and we just pray that tonight also we might keep our eyes on Jesus. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to remember one technicality here, or else you'll have a silent video to watch if you get the DVD. So, all right. Revelation chapter 14, Revelation chapter 13, we just looked at this passage, and we're going to do a little bit of review here, because in order for us to understand what Revelation is talking about, we must understand the foundation, which we've already seen in Daniel. So let's just look real quickly in Daniel once again. You remember the succession of empires, the, the vision that was repeated a number of times with Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Daniel chapter 2, the head of gold. Daniel chapter 7, the lion. Then Medo-Persia represented by the arms, uh, chest and arms of silver, the bear of uh, of, of Daniel chapter 7, and uh, Greece, the empire of Greece, represented by the belly and thighs of brass, and the leopard with four heads and, and four wings. Rome, represented by the legs of iron, and then by a great and dreadful beast with iron teeth that, that was a persecuting power, and we've, we've studied all of these things. We studied how the ten toes came after that, and then after the breakup of Rome, no one empire followed, but these ten tribes arose. There would, there would arise a what? A little horn, Daniel chapter 7, and it would uproot three of the original horns, and it would, it would really capture Daniel's attention in Daniel chapter 7. This would become something quite troubling for him as he saw the, the way it waged war against God's people, the way it, it decimated uh, the followers of God. And so this is one of the focal, focal points of Daniel chapter 7. And um, we saw here that there are 11 characteristics just in this one passage of this power, this power that tries to take the place of God, that tries to change the times and the law of God, 
that tries to persecute God's people, these 11 characteristics we find in Daniel chapter 7, it would be another horn. And we talked about how this power would not be one of the original 10 tribes. It would be another horn. It would be a different power. It would be a little horn, um, perhaps in more ways than one, but perhaps even geographically it would be a little horn. It would emerge among the horns, so we would expect it in Western, the Ro- Western Roman Empire, or in other words, in Europe. It would uproot three of the original horns. We have to look at history to see how that would happen. Of course, it would arise after the ten horns, which would mean that it would be, um, it would be after Rome broke up into those ten kingdoms around 476 A.D. as, as the, the uh, decline and fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbons defines it. That's the generally accepted time frame. It would speak great things. In verse 25, it says, it would have human vision. It would be different from the other horns. It would persecute God's people. It would think to change times and laws, and it would be in power for three and a half times. Or um, if we look at those times as years, as it's often used in the Old Testament, three and a half years, um, this is the same, po- the same time period that we find elsewhere in the Bible. Um, it's described as three and a half years, it's described as 42 months, it's described as a time times, the dividing of times, it's described as 1,260 days, all the same time period. Of course, since a Jewish year has 360 days, and a Jewish month has 30 days. So these, these, uh, these, these characteristics we saw have uh, only one possibility for fulfillment. There can be only one power that historically um, answers to these descriptors. And I, I remember I shared with you the story of going to Ukraine, and, and my translator said, you shouldn't tell the people what that is. You should ask them in history. What came up after the fall of Rome? Uprooted three tribes. Um, it, was a, it was a different power. It was a little power. And, all, and do you know, in that atheistic, communistic country where people hadn't been educated with a Protestant worldview, I don't know where they have been educated with a Protestant worldview anymore, um, but those, those, that audience with one voice identified it as the the papal Roman Empire that followed in the footsteps of the Caesars. And so here we find this, uh, this characteristic, these characteristics um, were f- indeed fulfilled. And we talked about how, especially with that time prophecy, that time prophecy, you remember 538, the last of those three um, other tribes were destroyed. Of course, it was not the Pope of Rome who was actually doing the fighting. No, the Emperor of Rome, Justinian, had sworn himself to do the bidding of the Pope of Rome, the Bishop of Rome. And so he was actually the one using Rome's own armies to establish the Church of Rome as the civil power that would rule that part of the world. Now I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want you to see another passage that describes, I believe, this same power that would rule for, from 538 for 1260 years all the way down to 1798. And we'll be talking more about that here this evening. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, I want you to understand that Paul, being a prophet, of course, and being a student of the Scriptures, he seems to have clearly understood the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. 
He seems to understand Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 describe this, this power that would, that would arise, and it would arise before the second coming. You see, there was a problem. In Paul's day, there were some people going around and saying, Jesus is coming again. These were Christians, of course, and they had the message, Jesus is coming again. You better, you know, he might be here next month. He might be here tomorrow. Now, there's nothing wrong with believing in the imminence of the return of Jesus. I mean, for, for that matter, friends, we don't have tomorrow promise to us, do we? Whether Jesus comes again or whether our life is just cut short, there's nothing wrong with having, having a sense of the, the imminence of the judgment or the imminence of Christ coming or seeing Christ, meeting Christ. But these people were teaching that Jesus was literally going to come again. I mean, perhaps they used some of Jesus' own words that he said. Um, um, you remember when John and uh, Peter and Jesus were walking on the, on the sea there that day, and, and, uh, and Jesus had, had just had this interchange with Peter about, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Remember that, that discussion? And then Peter, Peter, Peter says, you know, I want to go with you, and he says, I, you will go with me. You're going to follow me, but you're going to follow me in a way that you may not want to follow me. You're going to be you're going to be crucified like I'm crucified. I'm paraphrasing here, but they had this discussion the end of, in the book of John. And, um, and uh, Peter, Peter's hearing this discussion, and I don't know if he even understood what it meant, but he said, okay, that's what's going to happen to me. What, what, about, what about John? What about the one that's following me? He saw John walking behind. Of course, John never refers to himself as, when he's talking in the, in the third, he always refers to himself in the third person as the disciple whom Jesus loved right? And uh, John, Peter sees the disciple whom Jesus loved walking behind him, and he says, well, what about him? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus said, listen, it's none of your business. If it's, if, if it's my will that he's alive still when I return, then that's, that's, it's really none of your business. Now, John even clarifies. You remember the gospel of John is probably I mean, we believe that, that is the last of his writings. Um, it's the first in the New Testament, but it's actually it was written after the Revelation and after the epistles of John. And he's in his old years, and, and some people have been saying that Jesus has to come back before John dies because of that comment. And here in the last chapter of the Gospel of John, John says, he didn't say, I would be alive until he comes again. He said, if I choose for him to be, then what is it to you, right? He clarifies here. But some people, no doubt, had been going around saying, Jesus is coming. I mean, John's getting old or whatever. Um, there's, there's going to be this imminent return. And, and Paul is addressing this in 2 Thessalonians 2. And he says, the, um, we beseech you, brethren, verse 1, by the coming of our, our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letters from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you, verse 3, by any means. Here there must have been a danger for deception, right? Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, what day is he talking about? The day of Christ, the second coming, will not come except there come a what? A falling away first. Now, now, uh, Paul elsewhere, he talks about a, 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 an apostasy that would take place in the Christian church. He talks about grievous wolves coming in among you, not sparing the flock. He talks about those who were once with us but who wander away. And he, he describes it after my departure. He says, this is going to happen. And so notice what he says. There's going to be a falling away first. And that, what does he call him? That man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. 
Now, how would, how would Paul know this? Well, despite, I mean, besides having the opportunity for divine revelation directly, Paul could have studied the book of Daniel. And Daniel tells us that there's going to be this, this power that arises. And Paul's making it very clear this is going to arise from within. There's going to be a falling away. And in fact, that's what happened. If we look at the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, what happened was the church became polluted, you might say, tainted by the culture around it. It absorbed so much of the culture around it that it became more like the culture than it did the church. And, and the church itself experienced an apostasy, a falling away. We're going to look more at that in the next uh, few minutes. And this is exactly what Paul's talking about. The man of sin being revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This power would claim the very prerogatives of God. It would claim to be God on earth. It would claim to have the power to forgive sins. It would have the, cl the claim to have the ability to speak for God. It would claim to have the ab ability and the authority to change even God's own law or God's own word. Now, those are great things, great uh, claims. Wouldn't you agree? And this is exactly what happened. He, uh, he would oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. Skip with me down to verse 7. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now lets will let until he is taken out of the way. I'm not sure what translation you have. I'm reading from the King James tonight. But that word let is more like the word restrains or withholds. And, um, and that's, that's the meaning of that word. And Paul is saying, look... The mystery of iniquity is already at work. In other words, the roots of what would become this man of sin that would take, try to take the place of God on earth, the, the roots of it were already starting to exist even in Paul's day. He saw it. He saw this tendency toward worldliness. He saw this tendency towards, towards allowing the things of the world to creep into the church and, and not holding to the precious truths of God's word. And that's why he could say, after my departure, grievous wolves will come and not sparing the flock shall lead people astray. He knew that. He saw it was already happening. And notice how long would it, how long would it be um, in power. Notice with me. We'll skip down to verse 8. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of what? His coming. So in other words, Paul is trying to say, look, this man of sin that I'm talking about, the roots are already here in the first generation church, first generation Christian church. There's something keeping it from arising. When it arises, it's going to be revealed, and it's going to be around until the second coming. Now, just, just remember with me back, if we, if we go back to Saturday night, two weeks ago tomorrow, we talked about the three concepts, the three prisms by which, by which prophecy is looked at. Do you remember that? Futurism, preterism, and historicism. You can go online and listen to that. You can get the CDs um, if you like. Um, I have a few of them already from last weekend. Uh, two weeks ago, um, but the, it's online, you can listen to it, the, the roots of, of futurism, preterism, and historicism. Now, two of those schools of thought are, were invented by scholars who were a part of the Counter-Reformation. You understand what that means. They were Jesuit scholars 
who were assigned by the church, as it were, to find a way to explain Bible prophecy that didn't pinpoint the Roman church as the little horn of Daniel 7. And so futurism, which is overwhelmingly the most popular view of evangelical Protestantism today, I'm telling you, the Protestants who started the Reformation would roll over in their graves if they found out what Protestants are teaching today about Bible prophecy. The Reformers knew very clearly who the little horn was. And they were historicists. We, we don't have time to go back all into that. Preterists, the, um, on the other hand, talk about the, uh, while the futurists say the Antichrist is yet in the future, the preterists say it's already past. Both of them say you don't have to worry, it's not here today. But Paul said it was already beginning to work in his day, it would be destroyed at the second coming. To me, that sort of favors the historicist model, which says that we can find the, the uh, Antichrist, the little horn, the beast, in the Bible, and we can know what it is, and we can know what it's doing. We, we can even know what it's about to do, what it's going to do. Very interesting what he says here. For the mystery of iniquity will, is already at work, he says in verse 7, only he who now restrains will restrain until he is taken out of the way. And it's very simple. If we, if we read Daniel chapter 8, we saw how pagan Rome had to come to an end before it would place, and its own armies placed papal Rome on the very same throne. Um, that's, Paul's simply describing what Daniel 8 described, Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 described. And um, this is, I believe, another passage which describes the very same power, the very same power. So let's continue on, and um, let's see what we have next here. We have um, Daniel, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We notice that he's called the man of sin. He's called the lawless one. Remember Daniel chapter 7, he's described as thinking to change times and laws. He opposes God. He exalts himself. He's prevented for a time. He began in Paul's day and has destroyed the second coming. All characteristics that match what we would expect after studying Daniel chapter 7. Now let's look in Daniel chapter 12, because in order to understand the first, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 12, in order to understand the beast of Revelation 13, we're going to get a head start by looking at Revelation chapter 12. I wish we could just start in Revelation chapter 1 and, um, and work chronologically through. Um, uh, perhaps in the future we'll have a, a, a weekend on the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets. There's a lot here in the first few chapters of Revelation. But in Revelation chapter 12, it's sort of a bridge chapter, and it, it gives a summary of, um, of what's taking place, um, particularly after the time of Christ and all the way down to the end of time. And um, Revelation chapter 12, let's beginning with verse 1. Notice it says, And there appeared a great woman, a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon, where, where are the crowns? upon his heads. Okay, so here we find a, 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 a description of a power, and we understand a, an animal or a beast or a dragon in, in Daniel, of course, represented a kingdom or a king. Here we find it has sort of a dual meaning, because as we, as we read down and as we remember what happened in history, we will recognize that this is talking about the enemy of Christ. Really, Satan is the, is the ultimate antichrist, isn't he? 
He's the one that's really at a, a war against Jesus. And, and here we have him using an earthly power, an earthly power, and it's described very clearly here. His tail, it says, drew the third parts of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as, as it was born. The woman represents not Mary so much as it does the pure church, the pure faith of God. The child, though, does represent Jesus because it says, it goes on, it says he's, he's caught up to God and to his throne and he's going to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's a clear reference to Jesus. We've already actually talked about this in our earlier seminar, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time. But notice with me what it says here in verse, verse 9. It says, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and its angels were cast out with him. So that's, what it, that, that's where the dragon came from. That's the power behind the, the forces that tried to destroy Jesus when he came, right? Um, but here we find that He's, it's a clear nod not only to Satan, to the, to the deceiver of men, but it's also a clear indication of the empire through which he would try to destroy Jesus, isn't it? Um, let's look at some of the characteristics here. We see it has seven heads and ten horns. Now, we haven't studied the heads yet. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, but ten horns, does that sound familiar at all? Yes, of course. The Beast of Daniel chapter 7, which represented what? The, the beast, the fourth power in, in Revelation 7, uh, Daniel 7, I'm sorry. It was pagan Rome, right? And here it had, it had ten horns. Um, and uh, we, we find that this has the same similarity here. It attempts to destroy Jesus. Rome, in fact, did it. It tried to destroy Jesus when it killed all the children of Bethlehem, all the boys of Bethlehem, um, when uh, the wise men didn't return to tell Herod um, that they had found the new king of the Jews. Um, we, we see that the crowns are on the heads. And if we look in, in Revelation chapter 17, we find in Revelation chapter 17 the, um, the secret here that tells us what these heads are on this beast, on this dragon. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 9, there's actually sort of two meanings to it. We're going to look at the one of them tonight. It says in verse 9, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven what? mountains on which the woman sits. And um, it also, verse 10 tells us, it also represents seven kings. But that's a whole nother study in Revelation chapter 17. The seven heads represent seven mountains. They also represent seven kings. And uh, the seven mountains, can you think of any city that's known as the city of seven hills? I mean, God is really pretty clear about this, isn't it? This is a power that, um, of course, Satan is working behind it, but attempts to destroy Jesus. It is described as having the ten horns. It has s seven heads, which are seven mountains. And, um, and, and it's, it's the power that, that tried to kill the, the babes of Bethlehem, as well as it's the power that crucified Jesus on the cross. And so here you have a, a clear nod to the power of pagan Rome, the dragon. The dragon in Revelation chapter 12, seven heads, ten horns, represents pagan Rome. Now again, where are the crowns? They're on the heads. Where are the heads? That's the city of Rome, right? It's right there. It's, it's Rome. Now skip down to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. And notice the similarities as well as the differences. Revelation chapter 13. 
And this is what um, we see here. It says, I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having, what does it have? Seven heads and ten horns. Does that sound familiar? And upon his horns, what? Now, where are the crowns? They've moved from the heads to the horns. And this would indicate that the, this now is a Rome that is after the breakup of the Roman Empire. Pagan Rome is gone. The crowns are no longer on the seven hills of Rome. They are now on the ten tribes. Rome has divided into these ten powers. Does this make sense? These little details, God is trying to show us what he's talking about. And notice it says, upon his, na- his heads, the name of blasphemy. Are, are the crowns named blasphemy? What are? The heads have the name of blasphemy. Where are the heads again? Seven hills of Rome. Now, we might expect this to be talking. We might notice that this is talking about the very same power described in Daniel chapter 7, a a power that would speak blasphemy, described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, one that would try to take the place of God and oppose God. And it says here in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 2, the beast which I saw was like unto a, a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Do you remember Daniel chapter 7? You had a lion, a bear, a leopard, and then a great and dreadful beast with ten horns. In Revelation chapter 13, you have a beast with ten horns, then you have a leopard, a bear, and a lion. It's as if Daniel, or John the Revelator, is not only looking forward in this prophecy, he's also looking backwards, isn't he? And he's seeing them in reverse order. This power came about through the successive empires that he's already, we've already learned about. Babylon, Medea, Persia, Greece, and Rome. But behind them all is who? The dragon, right? The dragon has been fighting against God's truth from the very beginning. The dragon has been trying to use these pagan powers who ruled the world and persecuted God's people. He's been trying to use them to destroy God's truth, to destroy God's people, to subvert the world, right? And what happens is, there is as if a crossroads in human history, that transition of the little uh, horn of Daniel 8 from pagan Rome to papal Rome. The crossroads of history is when the devil said, if I can't beat them, I'm going to what? I'm going to join them. It's not working to overtly oppose God's people. I've tried the Babylonian Empire with all of its mythology and all of its ideology and all of its, its, uh, its sun worship. I've tried the Medo-Persian Empire with all of its strengths and all of its weaknesses, all of its superstitions and all of its, its rit- rituals and cults. I've tried the Greek Empire with all of its Hellenistic dualism and all of its uh, Greek mythology with disembodied spirits and, and spirits and corpus and, and afterlife and all that. I've tried the Roman Empire. I've tried force. I've tried everything. But God's truth still stands. And friends, it always will stand. But at a point after Rome fell, the empire of Rome fell, the devil said, I'm going to stop trying to beat them from the outside. 
I'm going to start working from the inside. And he began to infiltrate the church, to dilute the church, just as Paul said he would. There it would come from within the church, this falling away. And pagan Rome would itself use its armies to make the bishop of Rome the head of the Roman Empire. I want to share with you just a few things that we see here. Um, Taylor Bunch, in his book, um, The Revelation, page 161, it is a well-known fact that the papal religion is a combination of the religious systems of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. For this reason, the beast is a combination of the four beasts of Daniel 7, which symbolizes those for powers. Um, we can turn to the uh, church itself for its own admission to how this takes place. Long ago, this is Reverend James uh, Conroy in the American Catholic Quarterly Review, April of 1911. Long ago, long ages ago, when Rome, through the neglect of the Western emperors, was left to the mercy of the barbarous hordes, The Romans turned to one figure for aid and protection and asked him to rule them. And thus, in this simple manner, the best title of all to kingly right, commenced the temporal sovereignty of the popes. And meekly stepping to the throne of Caesar, the vicar of Christ took up the scepter to which the emperors and kings of Europe were to bow in reverence through so many ages. The Bible here describes it this way. The beast which I saw was part leopard, part bear, part uh, lion, part dragon, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Now, what is the dragon in Revelation chapter 12? It's the devil, but he's working through pagan Rome. Seven heads, ten horns, horns, uh, crowns on the heads. The dragon gives him his power, his seat, and great authority. Rome itself, the, the pagan Roman Empire, coronated and gave the authority to the papal Roman Empire, to the Bishop of Rome, to take the place of the Caesars. Um, this is not just something that, that uh, we can see in a few places. This is well documented. Eusebius, who is, a, of course, ancient historian, says this way, in order to render Christianity more attractive to the Gentiles, the priests adopted the exterior vestments and ornaments used in the pagan cult. Now this is again from a from a from a from a uh, historian writing just well pretty much at the time when this is happening and he's describing what's going on in order for Christianity to be more, more popular they began to use the very same vest, vestments and and uh, and uh, and worship services and rites and ceremonies as had been used in the pagan cults. He writes further, he says, destroy the idols, never the temples, sprinkle them with holy water, place them in them relics, and let the nations worship in the places they are accustomed to. What did the Bible say? The, the dragon gave him his power, his seat, and great authority. Rome, which had been a pagan empire, simply became a papal empire. Um, this, my friends, is, is a fascinating, fascinating um, depiction of what took place in the early centuries. Now, I want to just say this again. I've said it before, but I want it to be very, very clear. Um, of course, uh, we want to keep our eyes on Jesus, amen? But secondly, I want to be very, very clear that we're not talking about any people here. There are probably very, very many sincere people in Eusebius' day, don't you think? Even the priests who were saying, look, let's just make it easier for the people and do what they're familiar with. 
Um, we're not here to judge them. What we're here to, sh- what we're here simply is to do is understand the Word of God. Amen. And the Word of God defines a system. It doesn't. It doesn't condemn people. God loves people, and God has His people in every system, even false systems. I believe that. I believe that with all my heart. Many of my family are Roman Catholic. I have nothing against anyone who's a Roman Catholic, but I have to be honest to what God's Word says. God's Word says in history there would be a great apostasy, there would be a falling away, there would be a man of sin be revealed, he would take the place of God, he would get in between the people and God, and that's exactly what happened. Instead of praying to Jesus, we began praying to to, to saints and burning candles. Instead of confessing our sins to Jesus, our high priest, we would have confessed to a human priest. God never intended for that to happen. He didn't describe the, that type of system of worship. That came about, frankly, and only because it, it, was, the, it was the way the population around did religion. And the church adopted the popular forms of religion. So I just want to be very clear once again that we're not talking about people. Uh, We're not trying to condemn anyone. But we have to be very, very clear about what the Bible says. Now, listen. The best way the devil can keep us from understanding the mark of the beast is to keep us from understanding the beast. I mean, there's no you, you have no hope of understanding the mark of the beast if you can't even agree on what the beast is right? We've got to be able to, to understand this in order to move forward. We have to, and I believe that God has to have made it clear enough for us to see it and understand it if we are going to have a uh, warning like he gives us against worshiping the beast or worshiping the mark of the beast or the image which the beast makes. In Revelation chapter 13, we get to um, on Sunday night. And so, the first beast of Revelation 13, we notice these characteristics. It has seven heads, ten horns, crowns on the horns now. The dragon gave the power, a seat, and great authority. It's worshipped. If we skip down to verse chapter uh, verse, uh, 13 and verse 4, they worship the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue 42 months. Now there's that time period once again, 42 months. And to him it was given to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Here we find again the depiction of that long period we sometimes refer to as the dark ages, the medieval ages, where the church ruled with an iron fist. Emperors, emperors were so afraid of the pope that when they crossed him, one story you, you may have read about, um, uh, I don't even remember what, which emperor it was, but he came, he came to the Pope's residence and he stood in the snow for days with bare feet to prove his penitence so the Pope would bring him back into favor. The Pope, the Bishop of Rome, was also the civil ruler of Europe. And um, of course, when you can control men's souls or destiny, or they think you can, it gives you great power over people, doesn't it? And when you can tell people, if you don't do what I say, you're going to burn in hell forever and ever, and all your relatives, they'll never get out of purgatory and all the rest, then it gave, it gave them great power over people. Besides that, you have to realize that the confession was not only a, you know, it might have been something good and cathartic for the people who confessed their sins, but it was, it was, it was, uh, 
it was, it was something that had a negative effect on the people who had to listen to those sins all day, you know, corrupting influence, but it had a wonderful, wonderful political benefit because the church had access to everyone's dirty laundry, everyone's secret sins. And don't miss that. The church used that power over the, over the rulers of Europe. Um, they knew things that the rulers did not want to be known. And um, this is something that we read about in history. Um, and the, the Bible says here that he, he speaks blasphemies. He's given unto him to uh, continue 42 months. And um, great persecution occurred during this time. It is estimated about 50 million people died because of their religious beliefs during this 1260-year period from 538 to 1798. 12, uh, 50 million people. And this is something that even the church has recently recognized and, and, um, and admitted. Um, now, I don't believe that it's wrong because it's persecuted. You know, this week we've, we've heard in the news, we've even heard talk about, well, all religions have done bad things. And that's probably true. Listen, the beast is not the beast because it persecuted, or at least not that alone, right? It's the whole system of everything else that took place in the Middle Ages, the covering up of God's truth, the displacement of God's worship, and the, uh, the, uh, the persecution, of course, of God's people. Now, there's a couple other characteristics we see here in Revelation chapter 14, uh, 13 and verse 4. Three, it says, I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and the deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Now, remember, we've talked, there's six, six different times this time period is found in the Bible. Daniel 7, 25, Daniel 12, 7, Revelation 11, 3, Revelation 12, 6, Revelation 12, 14, and Revelation 13, 5. Uh, we're, re we're reading here the last one, Revelation 13, 5, the 42 months um, 1,260 years, remember that the last of those uh, horns were uprooted, as we studied earlier in the seminar, uh, in 538. 1,260 years brings us down to 1798. What happened that indicated that the Pope no longer had civil authority in Europe as he had during these 1,260 years? What happened in 1798? Well, the French. The French Revolution took place, of course. They said there's no God but reason. There was a power struggle going on between the royalty of of France and the Pope, and there was a general sent. General Berthier was told um, uh, to do whatever you can to bring an end to the Roman Church, to bring an end. And so he marched on the Vatican. The, the Pope was celebrating the anniversary of his 23rd um, year since his coronation, and um, Berthier uh, took over the Vatican he, uh, he uh, marched in, and he took the Pope, and he took him captive, and from then on, he went to various different castles, and he would die in exile, marking rather dramatically the end of the, tw of the 1260 years. Now, I want to share with you a couple of, a couple of statements that uh, historians share about this event of the wound occurring. Um, France sends an army against the papacy. Um, let me see here. 
It came, this is from John Adolphus, The History of France, Volume 2, published in 1803, so not too long after this event took place. It came as the climax of several centuries of decline and the influence of Catholicism on the minds of Europeans. And it was not a mere, merely a military coup, but was a stroke deliberately intended to terminate the papacy forever. Now, this is written five years afterwards when it's still not clear what's going to happen, you understand, right? The goal was Napoleon's general, Napoleon, the, 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 the uh, royal family of France, they wanted to end the church forever. That was the goal. Um, he goes on, he says, during the French Revolution and under orders from the revolutionary French government, General Ag Alexander Berthier issued a proclamation in Rome on February 15, 1798, informing Pope Pius VI and the people of Rome that the Pope should no longer exercise any function. Richard Dupa, a British writer who was in Rome at the time, says that the Pope was arrested in the Sistine Chapel while he was celebrating the 23rd anniversary of his coronation. Citizen Haller, the French Commissary General, and Servani, who commanded the French troops in Rome under General Berthier, gratified themselves in a peculiar triumph over this unfortunate potentate. During that ceremony, they entered the chapel, and Haller announced that the, to the sovereign pontiff on his throne that his reign was at an end. The poor old man seemed shocked at the abruptness of this unexpected notice, but soon recovered himself with becoming fortitude. The Pope's Swiss guards were dismissed, and Republican soldiers were installed in their place. Richard Dupa, a um, British account of the subversion of the papal government of 1798. In spite of the old uh, Pope's advanced age and frail health, he was in his 80s, he was hustled off by French soldiers to a string of different addresses in Italy and southern France. He died in prison in the fortress city of Valence in August of 1799. Not only this, but the French Revolution seized church property, abolished the work of the priests, and put the church under a ban. Now, you might think this is a pretty dramatic event, but it's meant to fulfill prophecy, isn't it? And to let us see that after 1260 years, precisely 1260 years, the church no longer had civil authority. There was no longer a government over Europe that it was in charge of. Now notice, probably one of the most improbable predictions to be made is right here in Revelation chapter 13. It says there was this head wounded to death and his deadly wound was, what does it say? Healed. Healed. Now in 1803, I don't know if that would have been imagined because France intended to make a a a, a termination of the papacy. That was the goal. It was to be forever at an end, forever ended. And by the way, even if it was in France, which had been mostly Catholic, of course, before the French Revolution, the rest of Europe had been swept by the Protestant Reformation. And they weren't about to go back to putting the Pope in charge of the civil governments of Europe. In fact, it looked like there would be no way this could ever happen. There was strong prejudice in, prejudice in Protestant circles 
against Roman Catholics. Some of you are old enough to remember, um, actually you don't have to be that old, I guess, but um, you're old enough to remember how religion was an issue in a presidential election. Remember what year that was? 1960, John F. Kennedy was running for president, and he had to overcome the idea that he was Roman Catholic because America was a Protestant country. When my parents grew up, my mom grew up in Catholic New Orleans. She was Catholic, and uh, Protestant kids didn't play on the street with Catholic kids. There was strong sense of separation. Now, in 1803, the idea that the deadly wound would be healed, this blow that the papacy had received would be healed, would have sounded preposterous. In fact, in 1960, almost 200 years later, it would sound preposterous. What does the Bible say? The Bible says the deadly wound would be healed, doesn't it? And in fact, that process began some time ago, widely recognized the first time the Pope received civil jurisdiction was in 1929 with the Lateran Treaty. Mussolini and Cardinal Gaspari signed historic Roman pact. And um, the, the, uh, the, the dictator of Italy and the, uh, the uh, royal family of Italy, as well as the, um, the cardinal, now have uh, agreed that Rome would cede civil jurisdiction of the Vatican City back to the Pope. This was widely hailed because it was a tremendous development after so many years of not having civil authority. I, I should say there were a few times during, the time, during that, between 1848 and, and 1870 about, where there was some, um, the, the Pope was able to maintain his own his own um, territory, I guess you might say, in Vatican City. But since 1870, this had not been the case. And um, we noticed that the, uh, the newspaper said, six decades of ill-feeling and tension between the government of Italy and the papacy have ended with the signing of the Lateran Treaty. The agreement reestablishes the sovereignty of the Pope. And of course, they, they allowed them to set up their own ideas. This is from the New York Times of um, uh, June 7 of 1929, the, written from Rome. Um, from 11 o'clock this morning, there was another sovereign independent state in the world. At that time, Premier Mussolini as Italian foreign minister representing King Victor Emmanuel, the first Italian premier ever to cross, cross the threshold of the Vatican, exchanged with Cardinal Gas Gaspari, papal secretary of the state, representing Pope Pius XI, ratifications of the treaty signed at the Lateran Palace on February 11. By that simple act, the sovereign independent state of Vatican City came into existence. A few minutes later, Swiss guards, resplendent in multicolor uniforms and bearing rifles with fixed bayonets, marched out of the apostolic palace in which they have been confined in the past and took possession of the territory ceded by Italy. They mounted guard at its frontier. At the same time, the historic bronze door leading into the Vatican palace, one side of which has been closed since 1870, as a sign of mourning for the loss of the Pope's temporal power, were thrown completely open again amid cheers from both inside and outside the Vatican to signify the peace had been reestablished between the church and Italy. You notice the Vatican had its own symbology for having both spiritual as well as temporal power. In 1929, they recognized that this had been restored. They had civil as well as religious power. 
Um, the Great Controversy, page 573, says this, in the movements now in progress in the United States to secure for the institutions and usages of the church the support of the state, Protestants are following in the steps of papists. Nay more, they are opening the door for popery to regain in Protestant America the supremacy which she has lost in the old world. Now, of course, this was written um, about 120 years ago, and people at that point would have said, you're crazy. I mean, this being written in the 1880s, 1960, you still couldn't have a, someone running for president who was a Roman Catholic. How in the world could Protestant America, would the deadly wound be healed that thoroughly? Is that possible that the church will once again come to have or exercise authority through the arm of government? as it did during the Middle Ages? Is that even possible? Well, the Bible says the deadly wounded be healed. And we're going to be looking the next couple nights at Revelation chapter 13 because there's another, a second beast of Revelation 13 that arises. Now, what does a beast represent? A king or a kingdom. It has to have civil power. It has to. And what you find in the very last prophecies of the final showdown on planet Earth is the first beast of Revelation, which has had a deadly wound that was healed, unites with a new power to enforce worship. Now, I just have to be true to what the Word of God says, friends. I have to be honest when I say the future includes, again, coercion of conscience by the power of state and it will be at the behest of the same power that for centuries dominated Europe. That's my conclusion, my, my uh, belief. Notice with me what it says. Skip with me down, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The way that's written, it really sounds like the majority are going to be following the beast, doesn't it? Except it's not, it's not the whole world, is it? It's a good, it's a good thing there are, there's an exception there. Except those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's what I want. How about you? If any man hear, verse 9, let him hear. He that leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He that kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience of the saints. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth... It's as if he's trying to tell us when this next thing is happening. He talks about the persecuting power being persecuted. When did that take place? When was the papacy ended? 1798. He, he flashes us back to that power, that, that point in history, and he says, I held another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, spake as a dragon. We don't have time to get into this tonight. But notice he says in verse 13, he does great wonders. And uh, he makes fire to come down from heaven. He deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles that she has power to do. Verse 14, in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had a wound by the sword and live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Worship. Coercion. Remember, this is all taken from Daniel chapter 3. So if you haven't listened to that sermon, go back and listen. There's a lot of hope there. Because in Daniel chapter 3, oh wow, it's amazing how that story ended. He caused all, 
both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the number of the beast or the number of his name, or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And then we find 666. I believe, friends, you can mark my words. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I know it will happen because we can see with historicism, we can see the fulfillment of prophecy marching on. And we can see how it's been being fulfilled. We can see how it is being fulfilled. We know it's going to continue to be fulfilled in the same way. And mark my words, the Church of Rome will once again come to political influence and power, and the nations of this earth will be willing to do her bidding. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I believe that's what's, that's what's um, predicted. Just a few weeks ago, Pope Francis was in the Philippines, the largest gathering ever in history um, for a mass. Six million people were out to turn in terrible weather, downpour rain. And um, the widely quoted was one 13-year-old boy who said, I saw God in his eyes. It actually reminded me of one of our presidents who recently, former presidents who recently converted to Catholicism, who said the very same thing after sitting down with Pope John Paul II. I saw God in his eyes. Um, the world is once again wondering and following the beast. Well, you could say that's the Philippines. The Philippines is obviously one of the most populous Catholic countries. Um, you would expect those things to happen. But friends, remember, we, we're Christians, right? We're not beastians. So we're not, we, we want to keep our eyes on Jesus but neither should we stick our head in the sand. And when you read in the newspapers what's happening in our world, you ought to start getting clues of what's going on. Did any of you see the news yesterday? Um, for the first time in American history, joint session of Congress, one thing Protestants and, uh, Protestants, Republicans and Democrats are agreeing upon, inviting the Pope, never happened before, in Protestant America. Never happened before um, that a religious leader would have that kind of influence. He's due to become the first pontiff ever to speak before the U.S. Congress. Now, this is what John Boehner said, that, that day His Holiness will be the first pope in our history to address a joint session of Congress. I am, um, Obama said, I am very much looking forward to welcoming Pope Francis to the United States. Um, around one in three members of Congress are Catholic, as are both the House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, a Democrat, and Republican John, uh, Mr. Boehner. Mr. Boehner says, we're humbled that the Holy Father has accepted our invitation and certainly look forward to receiving his message on behalf of the American people. All I'm saying is the deadly wound, I believe, is being healed. I believe we're living in the last days. And I share this tonight, knowing that, you know, if, if, you, if you missed some of the previous nights, you might, be, you might find it like drinking out of a fire hose, because we sort of nailed down a lot of those things earlier in the seminar. But I share it with you tonight because I believe it's important for us to know. I really do. I really believe these prophecies are being fulfilled. And very soon, we could see the last scenes of Revelation chapter 13 playing out. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I know one thing. God is never surprised. 
That's why in Revelation chapter 14, we see a picture of a group of people who aren't following the beast, but are following the lamb wherever he goes. And they're following him and they're prepared for his return with a special message. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7 says, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Friends, the everlasting gospel is the antidote to the beast's deceptions. The, the beast says, worship or you'll receive the mark, or worship or you'll, you'll, and receive the mark, or you will not be able to buy or sell and you'll be killed. But Jesus says, Jesus says, don't worship the beast, worship the creator. He says, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Worship the creator. That's the message that we have for these last days. And we're going to be studying tomorrow night and uh, Sunday night more about the message of Revelation 13 and Revelation 14. I hope that you will um, make it a, a priority to uh, do one thing for me. Make sure you know Jesus as your personal Savior and friend because He's the one that we need to stay close to in these last days of earth's history. I would invite you to bow your heads with me for prayer. Father in heaven, we just thank you that you've given to us your word. We thank you that you've given us an opportunity to study it tonight. And Lord, we've covered some pretty, some pretty hardcore things that may have been uh, uh, new for some people. And I just want to pray that tonight, as we've had a chance to look in your word, that you would just shine your spirit and you would open hearts and minds to understand the days in which we're living. And most of all, Lord, despite whatever happens with the beast or the image or the mark, the most important thing is, Lord, we want to know you, and we want you to be our personal Savior. We want to be found worshiping, worshiping the Creator, not the counterfeit. And we thank you in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.